This is the Yahoo2.com podcast for July 16th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Enns, and on this episode, I'm talking with Aaron Govern, one of the members of the Yahoo2.com staff who works in the tourist section of the website, about the recent discovery of a recording of U2 that predates anything we had known or heard about before. Before we jump into my conversation with Aaron, I want to let you know that you can find links to items we discuss in this episode at www.goodstuff.fm slash atu2 slash 93. And if you're not already subscribed to the At YouTube podcast, you can find the show in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you currently listen to podcasts. This episode is sponsored by Sandalwood Perfume for Men. It has a great woody note as a base and is joined by raw cocoa and rose to give it an underlying powdered sweetness. It's very smooth and has a creamy element while maintaining a familiar dry warmth. What I tend to favor is sandalwood. Now here's my conversation with Aaron. Hi, Chris. Really good to hear from you. How are you? Good, good. Where am I catching you right now? I am in a back garden in my house in sunny Warwickshire, a rare sunny day. Uh, Warwickshire is in the middle of England, part of the United Kingdom. And as I say, it's uh, quite a rarity to see any sun. It's usually quite dull and rainy, so I'm pleased today. I even get the barbecue out in a half an hour or so. I wanted to chat with you because uh, recently, I guess, I mean, recently relative to whenever people listen to this, but July 1st, anyways, you published, you helped publish along with the IU2, obviously, staff team, published an article titled, The Search is Over, Finding a Rare Dandelion. Dandelion? How did, is there an English way of saying dandelion? Oh, that's right. Dandelion. Yeah, spot on. Uh, dandelion in the market and the story of effectively finding the now earliest recording of a little band called U2, a very little band at that time, I'm sure, um, in terms of Bono's ego, maybe <laughs> not so much, but uh, finding that recording. So we're going to cover a bit of the story of the how, the why, where, etc. But uh, maybe just backing up a little bit before that, your involvement with at U2 is one part of your involvement, anyways, is on the tourist team. And what is the tourist team on at U2? Well, the tourist team consists uh, currently and has been for quite a while now, uh, four members, uh, myself, uh, Brian Betteridge, uh, Ross Perry, and John Crop. So we all have special uh, specialities, I guess. I mean, for instance, John looks after the venue side. Um, myself and uh, Brian and, and Ross really have no particular uh, obvious speciality, but we've been been conscious of trying to make the 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 tours website as accurate as we possibly can. So there's a quite a lot of uh, dates on the on the system that we've always felt a bit dubious. Obviously, the early days more so than anything else. Anything pre 1982, I would suggest. And um, so we've been looking for a long time to really to up our ante and try and find some actual primary evidence that these concerts took place. Uh, particularly in the UK and Ireland, and then initially when they started touring in the United States and the rest of Europe on the boy tour, and also trying to get some information about song lists and set lists, because to be honest with you, they're, they're, they're pretty bereft. And as you're probably aware, there's been very few recordings until the back end of 1980. So uh, that's really our, our principal uh, role is to just to, the database has been, you know, pretty fulfilled for the last 35 years of concerts, but pre that, from the early days of U2 right up to about the end of 82, it's a little bit sparse in terms of definitive and confirmed information. So that that's what we've been really working on for the last 12 months. 
Yeah, and there's another article where you shared uh, like a significant update of the pages, of effectively the database, but like the for the public anyways, they're seeing the pages from early Irish and UK shows from 76 to 80. So there's a bunch of you, I think, and others, or was it primarily you, I guess, doing going to the actual British Library? And- well, it's, it's, it's pretty much been, a, I have to say, has really been a very strong team effort because uh, Ross and uh, Brian in particular have been going through um, United States newspaper archives, and also they managed to get hold of some Irish newspaper archives, which I hadn't done at all. I, I um, had not gone on the digital archives at all. I decided to go old school, and uh, unfortunately, I've been I've been um, uh, unwell uh, for quite a few uh, months, and um, I've had some a long, long time off work. I'm back to work now, but I've had a long time off work, okay. and effectively, this has been my my gap year. The gap year I never had at university to do things. <laughs> And uh, one of the things I wanted to do, to do was to always go down to the British Library, it's, and not for the U2 thing, just to go down and have a look at various things in their archive. And I had popped down and gone into the the reading rooms, and this was back in January or so, and I realised that they had absolutely every newspaper magazine that you can possibly imagine in the archives. And they're all put in these beautiful uh these beautiful covered hardback books, effectively, they're, they're amazing. I mean, there's 160 million uh, newspapers and magazines held on that site. Wow. And, of course, every every week, I think it's the United Kingdom law, whoever publishes a magazine or a newspaper has to send a copy into the British Library within seven days. So to cut a long story short, around April time, I thought, right, I'm going to go through the catalogue and see what they've got. And lo and behold, they had entire... Uh, runs of the New Musical Express, the uh, Record Mirror, the Sounds Magazine, and Melody Maker, which are the main four long-term magazines that have been in existence in the United Kingdom. Regretfully, none of them now published. Uh, the last one, the enemy, finished a few years ago. But they go all the way back to their inception. Every single edition, nothing missing at all. And I thought to myself, well, you know, I've been a U2 fan since 1983, and I started doing all these clippings out of all of the magazines. But, you know, really early U2, I have nothing, you know, in terms of clippings and whatever. I had no access um, to, to the magazines at the time. I was a bit too young, to be honest with you, and probably didn't have enough pocket, pocket money to buy them. <laughs> and as I said, I didn't become a U2 fan really in earnest until um, March, January to March 1983. I saw them for the first time in March 83 live. But from then on in, I've got a pretty good uh, detailed records of U2, you know, from from uh, magazines, ma- magazine articles. I mean, phenomenal amounts of uh, magazine clippings I have, which are just beyond any sensible person would do. But that's <laughs> what that's what you know, that's one of my kleptomania. From the library, are you able to? Uh, do they allow you to take pictures of this of the articles or photocopy or? Yeah, you can scan them, but I have to say it's quite inconvenient because of the the way that they're um, they're they're bounded together right. um, but the easiest way to do it uh, is really just to take the take your picture of your mobile phone so mm-hmm. i got pretty good at this as well you know, as you can imagine and um, i've made uh, i made three trips already down there and in fact i'm actually by coincidence going down there tomorrow hopefully to do my final trip because i missed a few a uh, few years of sounds magazine uh, when i was down there the last trip which was around may time okay. and uh, I, I don't know I, I think i did about 900 magazines uh magazines and newspapers and you get really really you it, it's so easy to spot you two on a page i have to say that's the really helpful thing and of course as the band get bigger in 1981 82 it's even easier to find of course because you get in half page articles and whatever but the, the great thing you know back in 
the um, with with the, with with the having the tour dates and whatever is you're able to focus a little bit on what you're going to expect so in some cases you're almost thinking to yourself well there's a good chance this show will be in this particular magazine and lo and behold you go in the live section and there it is and you're thinking wow this is fantastic because you may only have two or three songs in there but it's just brilliant and you've got things like advert and all little news pieces you know when the when the band first came over and it was really hard actually as well as being a music fan not to start looking at other <laughs> other right. artists like Bowie or Prince or whatever that was I had to really focus on it because I was down there for about I don't know I did about 20 30 hours worth of work already down there on the three trips um but it, yeah as I say it's 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 a bit nerdy you know I'm sure people listen think to themselves god this guy's absolutely a nut job but you have to be in a way you have to you know the only way to do it is just to go old school and yeah. and just go through page by page presumably some of these uh, magazines might have digital archives that go back to the 90s maybe if we're lucky or whatever right in fact i inquired about that as well before i went down and at this present time none of those magazines have yet been digitized by the british library and you know just to let your listeners know it's not just the british magazines that are there there was also complete complete editions of billboard magazine and rolling stone magazine and uh, there was another one called is it spin magazine yeah. i think yeah. it was an american magazine they're all obviously well not 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 rolling stone and billboard but uh, there's a few there that which are you know a little which have started to be um, um, started to become quite rare to find in any case, you know, for for in, around the world. You know, it's a massive task, as you can imagine. Yeah, no kidding. Well, as uh, on behalf of YouTube fans listening, I guess, and especially the nerdy ones who are, you know, out there and, and really dig into this kind of level of detail, uh, we just want to thank you for. I'm glad it's not just me. Then. Yeah, it might be, maybe it's just you, but I think judging by the way that we'll cover, get into this a little later, but how the story went kind of around the world um, on its own. Merit, I think that speaks a lot to the the interest there is, anyways, in in this kind of information. So, before we get there, what um what was the earliest recording of you two that we had before this discovery? Well, that's an interesting one itself because I remember going to Ireland to visit my my relatives. All my all my relations are Irish. I just happened to live in the UK, and I used to pop along to little shops in Temple Bar and basically also as well on the. O'Connell Street Bridge, and I one of the very, very first tapes I ever bought was one entitled U2 Cork Opera House, 5th of October 1979. Now, it's only in recent years, actually, there was never a concert on the 5th of October. It was actually the 22nd of October 1979. <laughs> but that is that is actually the earliest recorded U2 uh, show, and it was professionally recorded because it's been, uh, it was broadcast in the day, probably November 1979 or December 1979, on RTE radio and i think it's probably may have been rebroadcast since um but that was the earliest one then the next show that seems to be well known is when they played the national stadium in dublin um, i can't remember the precise date i think it's the 26th of february uh, 1980 and that is really their showcase concert because they'd already now had um like the previous show you know they're onto their second single i think with another day regarding private recordings somebody has recorded you two in uh, tullamore in ireland on two occasions the occasion when they played in march 1980 and then later on in may um 1980 at a, at a venue called the garden of eden um in tullamore so those are really the earliest u2 uh, shows that that are, are are available, and then really, then it's you have to wait until the boy tour, and again, even that's sporadic. There's only a half a dozen or so shows, and then of course, when 1981 starts, there's quite a lot of recordings. So most of those recordings do have some rarities on them, 
um, songs that um, are kind of different versions of uh, songs that were eventually recorded, like 11 o'clock TikTok, I think, on the Dublin National Stadium tape is known as Silver Line. And it's the same song, ultimately, but a different version. And of course, I guess the band were at that point writing for the album, using the songs that they had, etc. So there's quite a lot of different shows. But yeah, this this particular show that I've um, I came across is precedes that a cork show by about six or seven weeks, I think it is. It's interesting just how, compared to the present day, where every U2 concert by the band and by fans are recorded, archived. And, you know, if if anything, they have like 50 different camera angles just from fans, never mind whatever the band has in their archives. You know, it's a different kind of world. I mean, I guess the tech, technology going back 40 years ago as well was so much different. I mean, you know, the, the Sony Walkman hadn't really, well, I think the Sony Walkman actually is 40 years old in July 1979, but very few people would have had a recordable um, tape recorder even then. And it was quite a large, mm-hmm. large device, usually with about 27 AAA batteries in it or whatever that lasts 20 minutes. So <laughs> it was quite a, quite a difficult thing, I imagine, to take into a concert and something you wouldn't probably do necessarily as a, as a fan, you know, particularly a, a fan of a band that had yet to release a record, you know, you would have yeah. taken some, some reason to, to do it. Uh, and thankfully, uh, you know, the, the taper of this concert had done so. So let's get into that, I guess. What, how did you first, what's the story behind finding this, I guess? How did you hear about it? How did you know to look for it? <laughs> yeah, I guess with the British Library stuff, we were going through all these Irish shows and these UK shows, and we were very excited, of course, by all this discovery on the Irish newspaper databases, the British Library clippings that I'd got, and the team had, you know, we put all these song, new songs in and whatever. And there was something that I remembered from a few years ago where I remember being on YouTube and seeing Out of Control Dandelion Market. And I think I'd put a comment on the onto the onto the um, onto the comment section of this of this uh, where one song had been played. I think it was "Out of Control" is up on YouTube. I think it's still there actually, uh, saying any chance you'd want to sell the tape. And I think that Pete, who was the guy who's, who's uh, gifted me the tape now, uh, said, "Yeah, any reasonable price." And I never. Th- I don't think I even spotted the comment actually until recent <laughs> weeks. I didn't ever go back to have a look at it. But I, when I was down at the British Library and we were going through all of these shows and trying to verify things, and I just thought to myself, "Oh, there was isn't there a? I'm sure there's a, an early tape out there, or possibly an early tape out there." I wasn't absolutely certain, and uh, I managed to go back to the YouTube uh, video that I'd probably seen four or five years prior, and thought to myself right how the hell will i get in contact with this guy so i it just did the usual google thing and i put two and two together i thought right i'll give this gentleman a call and rang him up and said any chance i could hear the tape and uh, he said what tape is this and you know and blah 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 and he he himself had probably hadn't heard it himself for a good good 35 years or so um and he said to me oh i'll give you a call back so i think a few days later i call hadn't happened i thought i'll give him another call and we started having a big long chat about things and i was explaining to him what what i was doing on the at u2 website and um you know just a general introduction i think obviously he realized what what a fairly you know fairly uh, big fan i was and collector of all types of things not just recordings but just general u2 stuff memorabilia the records obviously and uh, everything else that's been on and uh he said to me well yeah, I mean, I'd be happy to give you the tape. And I, when he said, give me the tape, I didn't quite understand what he meant by give. But um, he literally was so pleased about uh, the fact that I was going to 
do something with the tape, you know, in regards to uh, bringing it out in the open effectively and, you know, the songs that were on it or whatever. He's literally gifted me the tape, which was just the most incredible thing. Um, His name is Pete McCluskey. He is a a, a songwriter and a guitarist in a uh, Irish punk band that operated from around 1978 through to 1982 called the Straugers, a Dublin band uh, from North Dublin, a bit like another band we know. And uh, as I say, he managed to get a few support shows supporting you too, and had recorded the concert um, himself at the Dandelion Market. You know, I mean, there's not not many Dandelion Market shows. The same with the McGonagall shows. They're all been fairly legendary and fairly mythological. But uh, one thing he did do, he did a fine job in the recording because it's a very clear audio. You know, it's a it's good for its time and it's good for its context. To be perfectly frank, and of course. I was really then surprised to find the on the on the audio there was these two songs that you know they're mythological really you know the the concentration cramp and the in your hand you know song titles and lyrics we may have seen before but not heard, heard any audio and as far as I'm aware I don't believe they were recorded in their own right as demos um, as far as we as far as we were lest the band pull out the archive and surprise us at some time yeah, I mean, the, the the amazing thing with Pete is he's gifted me the tape. And, of course, I have this honour now of having this tape in my hand. And uh, I, I, I don't know if the listeners are aware, but uh, Pete has done extensive interviews because he, you know, the, 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 the piece, the article we did uh, went pre-viral. I think Rolling Stone retweeted it and then it went absolutely crazy. Mm-hmm. And he's done a series of uh, radio interviews and newspaper interviews around the world, uh, not only in Ireland, but America, Canada, France, I think, as well, and a few things. So I think he's, for a week or so, um, a couple of weeks back, it was absolutely crazy for him. Yeah. Um, as he as he said to me, uh, 35, 40 years I've been trying to make it big in the music business, and you come along overnight, and I'm a roaring overnight <laughs> success. He's, he's a funny fella, I have to say. He's a, he's a, he's a well-known music figure, to be honest with you, in, in Dublin. Um, and it has been for a long time. I mean, when he, you know, he he used to write every week into Hot Press magazine. Um, he was known as Pete the Roz. I'm not sure what that actually means, Pete the Roz. I think it's something to do with the police or something, uh, or just a just a general nickname. But he used to write in every week to so the point where the where the editor used to say to him, "Well, no, we want you to write an article like this every week." You know, he was he was really funny. And then he moved on to run a um, a record label in, in Ireland. He's a well-known person within the industry as such, and generally all nice guys, successful novelist, you know, he's good. He's a good chap. And there's an interesting story in there too of the, and obviously folks can go read the article, but just in, in brief, I guess the, the, uh, the fact that it was actually recorded, it was almost, it almost didn't happen. Yeah. No, what happened, I think was he had recorded, yeah, he went to the previous night's concert in Hoth, which is just on the uh, north side is on the coast. Um, I think it's the community centre. He went there, I think, on the 10th of August, 1979. And he took the recorder with him with the intention of recording that concert. You know, they had supported, his own band had supported U2 that night. And uh, when he when he got home, he realised rather than press record and play, he'd only press play. So he actually didn't record the concert at all. And um, somehow in the morning, the following morning, um, Paul McGuinness had got in contact with him or one of the other members of the band to say, well, you know, the band are playing again this afternoon at 3 p.m. in the Dandelion Market, and we'd like you guys to support us again. So we thought, well, perfect. And uh, But, of course, he needed his guitar and his cassette player, and uh, he was at home. But we, we went home, 
and he couldn't get into his bedroom or couldn't get into one of the rooms where the where the guitar was because his mother had locked the doors or something and she had the only key in the household and had gone out into Dublin city centre to do shopping. So in a mad panic, he mentioned this to his father who was outside doing the garden or whatever. And fair play to Pete's father. He got on his bike and cycled something like six miles into the city centre. And only an Irishman could do this. He found his wife in a curtain <laughs> shop, shopping, got the key, rode the, rode the six miles back, handed the key to a much-relieved Pete, who obviously leapt up into his bedroom or this room, got the guitar, and then thought to himself, crikey, I've only got about an hour to go to get to this concert. He then spotted a taxi opposite, outside the house or opposite opposite some, some shopping centre or something, and got in the first taxi he'd ever took in his life. But he made the concert, he pressed the record, and history has been made. Did he, and it's a crazy story that even just that alone, and just as a band, you know, you can anticipate or feel the like nervous energy of like, you know, U2 wasn't huge, obviously, but they were big at that time in, in his circles, I'm sure, big enough that it was important to get to this gig. And the, the terror of like, oh, shoot, my guitar is locked and I can't get it. And how am I going to get that? Yeah. Um, did he have a, a sense of like when, when he, played the gig was there a sense of like an importance to record like why would you want to yeah i spoke to peter fair a few times before um i got the tape and i was really intrigued like you are about what made him record it and he had said that he'd seen the band i think back in 1978 at mcgonagall's and subsequently of course had supported them a fair few times it was a good six six to ten times to be perfectly frank um that he had recorded them um, so, sorry, seen them live. And um, he thought to himself, you know, I really am impressed with the drummer, Larry, who would have only been still 17 at the time. <laughs> and he was very impressive, Edge in particular. And he thought to himself, you know, I must record this band. He he really got into them. And that, that was it, really. I don't think he's, I don't think he ever expected them to be as big as they would ever become. But, but in terms of young Dublin bands or whatever, he, he I, I guess he thought they had that special factor that stuck out and was different to to most other other uh, bands that he would have been aware of and seen, you know. Yeah. There were, there were hundreds of bands in Dublin, you know, having a go at trying to make it in the big time. And I'd say there was there was a very few few bands who actually signed up an international record deal. But uh, he obviously had the foresight to realise, oh, this is good. And, you know, you can tell that as well from listening to the, those, those early tapes, and particularly this show. The audience reaction is quite phenomenal for a band that really has no recordings at all. There's nothing out there that you can listen to and go to the concert and say, oh, I, I recognize this song. You know, this is something that this, this must have been a word of mouth for for the likes of uh, any U2 fan at the time. And of course, they did play a lot of concerts back in 1979, you know, reticencies at Lion and McGonagall's in particular. So the opportunity to see them, if you're a Dubliner, was actually quite high. But you, of course, you'd have to somehow find out about it. And I think obviously word of mouth probably helped you to tremendously in those early days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so out of that concert that he was at, he recorded, or the recording we have, or that you have now, I guess, is yep. of two songs, right? It's not the whole concert, or is it the? Oh no, no, no! The whole the whole concert is the whole concert. It's um, sixteen tracks. With out of control is on it twice at the beginning and towards the end, and I think <laughs> that's so great. The last song is uh, "Glad to See You Go" by the Ramones, and then I mean, there's there's quite a few songs on there that um, have never been. Um, released on albums or singles or B-sides, you know, but I have been recorded as demos. Um, but 
you know, there's there's another and and uh, there's um oh I'm trying to think of the I'm just trying to think you know what else is on it. It's been out of control is on it. I think Stories of Boys is on it. Boy Girl is on it. Yeah, another time, another place. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. But I, I think what's completely unique, of course, is the fact that this appears to date to be the only recordings of concentration cramping in your hand. And mm-hmm. you know, we put the clip, we put the the thirty second or so clippings upon the upon the site, uh, you know, to introduce the. The discovery of the tape as such. So why is that that we can't share the whole tape? Obviously, fans, I'm sure, are wondering. Like, you know, we hear the snippets on the, the and we'll have the link in the in the show notes um, to to where you can find and listen to the samples. But why can't we share the whole concert to with the world? Absolutely, I have to say, I'm not I'm not uh, a person who's ever uploaded on the on these torrent websites, and I haven't actually downloaded that much in my time either. To be perfectly frank, um, but. Um, yeah, I would love uh, you two fans to hear it, but things have taken a, a strange uh, curveball because Pete himself, within 24 hours, got a call from U2 management saying the band would love to have a digital copy of the whole concert because I guess clearly they haven't got a copy, otherwise they wouldn't ask for it. And I guess they haven't got any of the audio of those early days. Um, so he um, sent that through to them. And the following day, I got a call as well from U2 management asking about uh, about the, the cassette themselves. And I'd already gone public to say I would be very pleased for that to be uh, be a part of their exhibition items at their proposed museum. Because you probably wear uh, the Hanover Key Studios has had some planning permission approved to be knocked down and rebuilt as a U2 museum which I'm not absolutely certain, but probably is about two or three years away if if those plans come into fruition. So that that was that was the call I got from U2 management as a result, and I said absolutely, I'd be delighted to uh, to uh, to share that and other items of memorabilia that I have. Um, but at present, of course, they did say to me, please don't share the audio <laughs> if you don't mind until we get to listen to it. I mean, you know, I have no idea what what that might mean. It would be wonderful, wouldn't it, if they think, well, it may not be the best audio, but perhaps we could release it somehow or another as a a fan club release. I don't know. You know, it's wishful thinking, perhaps, on my part. I think it's probably doubtful that they would release it, I'll be honest with you. But nevertheless, I personally would love that to be shared mm-hmm. uh, with their permission, obviously, now. Um to to a to an uh, in a, you know a wider audience. I understand that like you're you're sort of tugging in both being tugged in both directions, and it's not that they're they've thre- I'm sure they haven't threatened you with legal action or whatever. It's just kind of like uh, being polite to them. No, 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 no nothing, nothing like that. I think it's just it's just out of professional courtesy yeah. is how I would describe it. I'm yeah. I've I've been asked not to not 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 been asked is not quite the just been gently reminded of the the rarity of the of the of the audio. It, it, it would be lovely for for the tape to be part of an exhibition, and I'm sure other U2 fans have things stuck away in the in the attic somewhere that will be uh, asked for in, in future as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I hope so because you know there's plenty plenty of collectors out there who, and the band probably don't realise you know the early artifacts, badges, buttons, early posters, all those type of thing are are, are thin on the ground really. I, I I don't know if any of the U2 in particular have much of that now i mean there was the exhibition they did themselves at the rock and roll 
Museum, in, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, sorry, in Cleveland. And they had an exhibition back in the late 90s in Dublin as well, where there are a few bits and bobs. But uh, yeah. I think the fans probably just have as much have as much rarities as the band themselves from the early days. And of course, right through the whole of their career, not just the early day stuff, but right through to last year even, you know, there's going to be stuff that will be in that museum, I'm sure. And it'll be rotated, different different themes every few months. Let's hope it happens anyhow. I, I'm, I would love to go to that museum. Who wouldn't? Yeah, well, I mean, it sounds like, I know from talking with you previously that your your attic is its own little U2 museum. So hopefully they <laughs> they come in. Uh, I, I, I like the idea that U2's management just calls up random people who they want to get in touch with, almost like they have uh, the U2 fan database <laughs> that they just Rolodex through and find, oh, there's Aaron. We'll call him now and... And, uh, oh, to be fair, Pete had passed my number across anyhow. So, <laughs> oh no, don't don't spoil the don't spoil the illusion that I have of what is it in the in England the MI six or whatever the yeah I'm sure they'd be able to find out <laughs> they know people yeah Ireland's not that big but you're right you know up in my attic is ridiculous stuff that's just doesn't even see the daylight at all I don't have it up on the walls I don't have it in display or anything I just collect it and yeah I would to be honest with you it should be out in the open in my house but you know even better in a museum somewhere, just, just, you know, out of curiosity for somebody who go, oh, I've never seen that before or whatever. I have a few rare pieces that are unique, you know, but uh, mm-hmm. so do other U2 fans. And I, mean, I guess they will do those calls through to, to people to say, you know, have you got anything interesting to lend? But, you know, it's we don't know yet whether the U2 museum will actually happen, but I would have thought there'll be a very good economic demand for us. And there's no two ways about it. You know, U2 fans, tourists, et cetera, will, will promptly want to visit that. You know, yeah. It will definitely be a winner. Definitely be a winner. Yeah, and, and a very neat end of the not end, I guess, but part of that story I think will be for like Pete McCluskey and for yourself, even in, involved in this, is a bit of the story of the earliest recording. And who knows? Maybe this something like this will spark folks who to go out and search their you know basements or their de- um, dens or their wherever they keep some of this kind of stuff back in a uh, tub or a whatever that they might have a tape of an even earlier recording that nobody even realizes is there. So I mean, I'm hoping to be honest, with you, this, this tape just gives them the impetus to get on with doing this and start and curate and whatever, and give them the given the you know it puts a bit of bit of fire in their belly to to get on with it you know because i guess they're going to be in a quiet time now once the uh this joshua tree revisit in in the in far eastern australasia is done there's going to be a quiet time for a while before they start recording again and going on their next adventure yeah Awesome. Well, thanks, Aaron, for uh, for talking with me today about this, and uh, good luck in riding the fame and fortune that you get from finding <laughs> the earliest known U2 recording. Yeah, well, it's you know it's down to Pete at the end of the day. I mean, I would never have been able to write that article without his generosity just to lend the tape out, just to find what information was on there. You know, we, we've found some snippets of Bono singing uh black dog for instance by led zeppelin which is just totally bizarre listening to him to him sing that because i don't think he sang it in his for any of the concerts that we've we've heard you know it was just a really unusual thing for him to do so that it was great just to just to, to be able to hear it let alone have the uh, opportunity to to pass it on to the band yeah exactly all right well i'll let you get to your barbecue and uh yep, whatever you, you end much. up cooking for supper and hope you have a good night thank you very much nice speaking to you take care now 